again, I count it a high joy to be with you this morning. I do ask that you continue in prayer for us what time we stand before you. I'd like to begin by uh, going to Mark chapter 6 and doing some reading this morning. I'm actually going to uh, do more reading this morning than I normally do in my sermons, but that's okay because I've got two hours. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we read, And he went out from thence, and he came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when, he, and, and when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this, which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and of Joses, and of Judah, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty works, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. In this uh, passage that we've read, there's an expression that sticks out to me, and it's stuck out to me for a long time because the more I consider it, the more astonished I am at what I read. In verse 8, I'm sorry, verse uh, 6, it says that Jesus marveled. What does the word marvel mean? The word marvel means to be astonished, amazed, astounded. In our way of thinking, sometimes it means to be bewildered or confused. But in all these different connotations that the word marvel has, I would say that Jesus' astonishment was probably the the most appropriate. He was astonished and he was amazed. The reason that sticks out to me is because when you think of who Jesus is, him marveling is obviously a very uh, noteworthy experience. Him being astonished is noteworthy. And the reason for that is here is God manifest in the flesh. Here is the eternal Son of God who is without beginning of days or end of life. He's declared in the book of Daniel as being the ancient of days. And yet this one who knows everything was amazed. He was astonished. He marveled at what was in front of him. There are other expressions in Scripture that are like this when it talks about him remembering our sins and iniquities no more. A God that knows everything, not remembering something against us. Phrases like this stick out to me, and I think the lessons that they can teach are very profound, not just for what we can learn, but also what we can uh, do with that information. What was this occasion's setting that Jesus was so astonished at? He was astonished because he was in his own country, he was among his own kin, he was with those that knew him the best, and those that had, I would say, looked forward for generations for his coming. Think about, uh, uh, some of you have known me uh, a long time. You've known me in various stages of my life, and you've seen all the changes that have come as a result of that. You know me from when I was an idiot kid. You knew me from the time I was a a very uh, arrogant teenager. 
and so on and so forth. And I won't go through all those again, but you've seen all those changes happen for me. My family has seen the changes happen for me. I didn't start out life this big, mean, and ugly. I like to say I did, but I, I grew into it. But friends, they watched him grow up. They saw this child become a man. They watched every step he took, and every step he took was perfect. Every work he made was perfect. Every sentence that he ever uttered was perfect. I mean, I can imagine being his friend as a child was hard. Can you imagine that? I mean, we, we have friends that are better than we are, and they kind of make us look bad. Being his friend as a child must have been hard because here was a boy that never messed up, a man who did everything right. They knew him. But more than that, these were people who were Jews who knew something was supposed to be coming. And the coming of Christ, which was foretold in the Old Testament through multitudes of prophecies, was there walking around in front of them. You know why it shouldn't have been a surprise whenever he healed the sick? Because the Old Testament said he was going to heal the sick. You know why it shouldn't have been a, 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 an amazement when he raised the dead? Because the Old Testament said he was going to raise the dead, that he was going to heal the lepers or cleanse the lepers, that he was going to proclaim liberty to the captives. And this coming of Jesus Christ that was now walking around in front of them, they had all the evidence that they should have ever needed to know that this was the Son of God, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. And yet they didn't, and he's astonished at that. He's astonished at the fact that you know me, you know from whence I am, you know who I am, you've seen my walk, you've seen my deportment, and yet you still don't believe in what I've done. You know, there are people today, and I'm not here to, to th throw stones at people, but there are people today that just think if you talk to somebody long enough, if you reason with them hard enough, that you can convince them of what you want to convince them of. I'm going to tell you something, friends. There are people out there that I don't want to be delivered to. I want to be delivered from. The Apostle Paul prayed that we would be delivered from, not to, wicked and unreasonable men, for all men have not faith. There are people that you can talk to, talk to, and talk to, and it's never going to make a difference because they're never going to hear what you're saying and they're never going to agree with you. And that's not just non-elect. Some of us can become that way. We can become hard and stony in our own pride, in our own conscience, and with all the evidence in front of us, we can still refuse to believe the things that are true. And Jesus is astonished at this. Now, let me uh, just say for the record that I believe Jesus still marvels today at people's unbelief when they have all the evidence that they need to believe in what he has done. Think about what the uh, rich man uh, who was in hell told uh, Abraham when he was having a conversation with him. He tells Abraham, he says, Father Abraham, I want you to send Lazarus to my five brethren, and I want them to hear from him so that they don't end up in this place. And what does Abraham tell him? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. And he said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one came to them from the dead, they would hear him, they would believe him, but what does Abraham say? If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't hear one that came back from the dead either. You know why people don't believe today? Because one did come back from the dead, and they don't believe him any more than they believe Moses and the prophets. And here's a man who they knew very well, who they refused to believe who he was. And he marveled at their unbelief. He was astonished at it. He was amazed at it. And I'm going to say, tell you something, friends. When you, I'm going to hopefully bring this home in a, in a practical way at the end. When you think about who we are, we've been given every evidence. 
We've been given every reason to understand who he is and what he's done. And I hope to make that very clear at the end. So here's a, a group of people who he's just amazed that they don't believe. Amazed that they won't reason. Now, go with me to Luke chapter 7. And I'd like to read a very different example. One that I marvel at myself. Because it's a lesson for me. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue, then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends unto him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth. And to another come, and he cometh. And to my servant do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Very different situation in which Jesus marvels. And I read this, and I marvel. Because here is a man who didn't have Moses. He didn't have the prophets. He was a Roman. He didn't have the experience of growing up with Jesus, of watching him walk and talk. But he knew enough about who he was dealing with that he had some things to say about his situation. Now I want you to notice what doesn't win the day, what doesn't matter. What doesn't matter is what Jesus was told. They said, Lord, he's worthy. You really ought to do this because he's a good man. He loves our nation. He does a lot of really good things. You know that didn't have any bearing on this? Friends, who we are, what we've done, is not what we can plead when it comes to the Lord having mercy on us. Because this man did not send word and say, Lord, I did build a synagogue. He didn't send word and say, well, Lord, I did this for your nation. He sends word and says, Lord... Don't come any further. I'm not even worthy to talk to you. That's why I sent somebody. But here's what I know about you. You have sovereignty and power and authority to do whatever you want, to whoever you want, whenever you want. You know, that was unheard of for someone to have that kind of declaration about Jesus. That's why he said, I've not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. I've never heard an Israelite Talk about me that way. Matter of fact, he had to convince Israelites of his power, of his authority, of his sovereignty. I mean, when Nathaniel comes to him, he shows his power and his sovereignty by saying, I know who you are. Behold, an Israelite indeed, and whom is no guile. And Nathaniel doesn't go, well, that's right, Lord, you're sovereign. You know, he goes, who are you and how do you know who I am? And Jesus gives him one lesson. And that lesson is when before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And all that was enough 
for Nathanael to say, My Lord, my God, thou art the king of Israel. He knew something that day about Jesus, but Jesus declared it to him. Here's a Roman who knows nothing about the Old Testament who's declaring to Jesus what is already true in a way that Israelites never did. He said, Lord, I know what it's like to be under authority. I know what it's like to be set under authority, and I know what it's like to have people under me in authority. I know that when my masters, who I'm set under, tell me something, I've got to do it. And I know my soldiers, when I tell them something, they have to do it. And Lord, I know you that you can just speak, and it has to be done because you're sovereign. He's telling us, even though he's never met Jesus, probably only heard things about him, that one, I know I'm not worthy to be with him. Two, I know that he's not, I'm not worthy for him to be under my roof. But three, I know that he has power, he has authority, and he can do whatever he wants. And friends, I can tell you today that I'm not worthy for the Lord to be with me. I'm not worthy for him to come into my house. But I certify to you that he still has all the power, the authority, and the honor to do whatever he wants, to whomever he wants, whenever he wants, as it pleases him. That hasn't changed. And friends, my life should be geared around that. It should be positioned in such a way that I understand that. I very much appreciated what Brother Reed said in his prayer about how we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in turmoil about the world that is around us because, friends, I realize the world presses on us. I realize it gets us down. I realize if you watch the news every day, you will probably end up depressed. I have to say probably because I don't watch the news every day. Y'all actually inform me of things that I'm not, y'all say, you didn't hear about this? Nope, I sure didn't. You know, someone will say, did you hear what's going on on Facebook? I sure didn't. And I find out all the reasons why I'm not on Facebook. I haven't missed anything. I'm not missing the conversation that's going on, moving on. My point is this. You can let those things get to you. They can, they can try you. They can weigh you down and bow you under. But friends, when we remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he still has the same power and authority he had yesterday, today, and forever, and he'll still have all the majesty and all the honor for all eternity, and nothing changes that, it makes a difference in how our life looks now. That's why the Apostle Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, he said, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. The Lord has given us things that are able to get through the trials of life because of who he is and what he does. And here this man shows us, this isn't for Jesus' benefit, it shows us, friends, that even without all the evidence, all the knowledge, and all of the teaching, we can still understand and declare who God is. I love the fact that this man, who'd had no training in the law, who I doubt had heard what, even one prophecy of Jesus, maybe, you know, hearing people talk. Yet this man knew enough about the Lord to know that he can do what he wants. You know, I, uh, I, I get tickled sometimes when I hear people talk about the Lord, and they do so in such a way that he seems so handcuffed, so helpless, like he's begging us to do things for him. Friends, this is God who can look at nothing and speak and make something out of it. I can't even hold nothing in my hand. There's air there. There's matter there. But friends, he looked at what was absolutely nothing. He spoke, and there was something. And uh, I remember years ago, uh, whenever my mother was struggling because dad was already a member of the church and mom wasn't, uh, she just didn't believe what we believed. And she was talking to Elder Bill Walden, and he thought 
she had a problem with God's sovereignty. And mom never had a problem with that. She said, I know if there is a God, he must be able to do whatever he wants. Her problem was with things like election. Why would he do it that way? Why would one who had all power choose to do it that way? And I remember Brother Bill said, well, Sister Debbie, it's like this. You're, gonna, you're married now. You're, you have your own home. And you choose who comes into your home, do you not? And she said, I do. And he goes, well, why wouldn't God have that same privilege to choose who comes into his own home? Mom went, oh. <laughs> but see, the problem is, that, friends, people don't think God has the power or the sovereignty to choose what he wants about his own home about his own family, about his own situation. This is a God who has all power. And friends, when we have even very little teaching about the word of God, we need to understand that God, to be God, must be sovereign and must have power. And that's what this man declares. And this man does so in a way that Jesus marvels. Jesus is astonished by this. Jesus is not surprised, friends. I don't want you to get the understanding that Jesus was surprised. He knew what was going to happen. But it's still astonishing and amazing that one with so little knowledge could have such a grand declaration of Jesus. Now, I went through those two things very quickly because, like I said, I wanted to get to a practical example of this. And the practical example I want is found in Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, I'm going to begin with a very familiar verse and then back up and read down to it. The very familiar verse is verse 24 where the psalmist declares, This is the day which the Lord hath made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Sure, all of you have heard that verse, quoted that verse, maybe even sung about that verse. But friends, what got the psalmist to that point? What caused him to say, this is the day that the Lord hath made? We will rejoice and be glad in it. Let's read down to it. Verse 1, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. Because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let them that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. I called upon the Lord in my distress. And the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what, man, what, 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 what can man do unto me. The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations can pass me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. They can pass me about, yea, they can pass... They can pass me about, yea, they can pass me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They, I'm reading things twice, I'm sorry. They can pass me about like bees, they are quenched as the fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Thou hast thrust, thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall, but the Lord help me. The Lord is my strength and my song has become my salvation the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord hath chastened me sore. 
but he hath not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Friends, right before we talk about the day that the Lord made, we read about something being marvelous in our eyes. And what is it that's astonishing and marvelous in our eyes? What is it that amazes us? Is that the Lord had taken the stone which the builders rejected. He's made it the headstone of the corner. And all nations have flowed unto it. We're marveling at the fact, friends, that even in our weakness and even in our continued sin and depravity, the Lord's mercy endures forever. The Bible says it's of the Lord's mercies that we're what? Not consumed. Friends, I think about who I am, and I know me better than you know me, and I know he knows better, me better than I know me, and yet his mercy endures. That's astonishing to me. It's astonishing to me that he would even choose to have mercy on someone like me, but it's further astonishing to me that he would continue to have mercy upon someone like me, that it would endure forever. You know, I, I realize that we have, uh, in our mind, we have sort of uh, structures and grades and variations of, of uh, transgression. That, well, if somebody does to me, this to me, I can get over it, all right? If somebody does this to me, I can get over it, sort of. And if somebody does this to me, I ain't never getting over it. Are you like that? I am. Because, friends, there are things that I can get over a whole lot easier than others. One thing I can't get over very easily is when somebody lies to me because it makes me feel like I can't trust them. That anything else they say, I'd be weighing it to find out. But, friends, that's one of the reasons I love being around the people of God. I'm not sitting here going, I wonder if I can trust them. Because, friends, in the house of God, we can trust one another, unlike things in the world. But, friends, even when we have lied, the Lord's mercy endures upon us. Even when we've proven ourselves unfaithful, he is still faithful unto us. Even when he has given us the ability to do better and we don't do better, his mercy endures and abides. That's marvelous to me. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me, friends, that when you think about this world in which we live and all the dark things that are here, that the Lord is still on our side. The psalmist says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Or what shall I fear that man can do unto me? I tell you, friends, the, the story that, uh, uh, the, not story, the commandment that Jesus gave his disciples when he sent them out to preach for the very first time, and he told them, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. He says this, he says, fear not him, which is able to kill the body, and after that there's nothing more that he can do, but rather I say, fear him that is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Let me tell you something, friends, this is about to be very bad grammar, but it's good theology, so you pay attention. There are... There is only one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, and he's already declared, I ain't never going to do it. If the Lord, who is the only one who has power to do it, has declared, I ain't not, not going to do it, it ain't never going to happen, 
Friends, I can tell you this. There is nothing to fear in this world because the only one who has power said he ain't going to do it. If that be the case, what is there to be afraid of? The psalmist says, the Lord is on my side. If the only one who has the power that's worth being afraid of has said, I'm on your side, what can man do? Friends, it's marvelous to me that he would stand with me. It's amazing to me that he would walk with me, that he'll never leave me nor forsake me, that even when I walk astray, he never lets me go. It's amazing to me, friends, that when even, even when I'm going contrary to his will, I'm still held in the palm of his hand. It's marvelous in my eyes. It's marvelous to me, friends, when I consider that all these things that can pass about me, notice what it says in verse, uh, verse 13 and verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 14 and verse 15. When all these things are around me, it says, The Lord is my strength and my song has become my salvation the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous, uh, of the righteous, the right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. Even in this dark world, there is still a place to be found that is called the gates of the righteous, that is called the courts of joy. That even in this dark world, there is still a place where light is found. You know, even when it was dark in Egypt for three days, a darkness that was so dark it could be felt, there was still light to be found in a place called Goshen. And it's marvelous to me that in this dark and cold world, there's still a light to be found in a place called Bethel, in a place called the house of God, in a place where God comes down and he still condescends to men of low estate. It's marvelous to me, friends, that he comes down and he meets with us. Do you really think that this week I have deserved him to come down and to meet with me and to help me and to bless me? Absolutely not. Do you believe that we've ever done enough in a week to say, well, Lord, you owe it to me. You owe me to be here. Friends, the reason he owes it to be here is because he obligated himself to have mercy upon us, to have pity upon us, to come down in a manifest way. That's why the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we preach with what? The Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, that we have the, uh, the gate or the entrance into the everlasting kingdom, that we have a place to go, friends, where we can look up and see into heaven itself and see just the back parts of the glory of God. Friends, it's marvelous to me that he would leave such a place as this, that he would establish such a place where his right hand still doeth valiantly, where his right hand still worketh wonders and miracles. I hear people say, well, if we had miracles like they, uh, like they had back then, well, I'd probably, I said, we still do. Friends, I know the men who've been called to preach the gospel, and they ain't the best. No offense, Brother Sonny, we ain't the best. The Lord doesn't call the best. The Lord calls the ones that are the least esteemed, the most despised, the ones you wouldn't guess. He calls people with thick tongues, with stammering ways. He calls people that are introverts by nature who would rather not talk in front of God's people. He calls those that the world doesn't highly esteem. One of the things that I thought about about five or six years ago, however long it's been now, when I got the news that Brother Bill had passed away, a man that meant so much to me in my life. The verse that came to mind is Isaiah 57 and verse 1, The righteous perisheth, and none layeth it to heart. You know, there were no flags that I know of across the country flown at half-mast when Brother Bill passed away. But I tell you, that man meant more to me than any president or any statesman that's ever had flags flown at half-mast for him. My point is this. <clears throat> the Lord isn't here because I'm so good. 
He's not here because you're so good. He's here because his mercy endures forever. And he's promised us a place where his right hand still doeth valiantly, where his right hand still worketh wonders and miracles. Notice how he's, the progression here. Verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 15 says, The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. In verse 16 it says, The right hand of the Lord is exalted. Who is the right hand of the Lord? Who is his own arm that brought salvation? Who is it that was prophesied in Isaiah 52 and verse 10 that I'll make bare my holy arm in the eyes of all the nations? It's Jesus Christ. What is this place? It's where Jesus Christ doeth valiantly. It's where Jesus Christ is exalted. It's where we see the work of Jesus Christ put before us and we can extol and declare once again how gracious he's been unto us. But here, friends, is something else that's marvelous to me. I was reading through here about a month or so ago, and this verse hit me like it's never hit me before. In verse uh, 18, it says, The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. There's a story that I won't take the time to go through in detail, but you all know it very well. It's found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, the story of David, and when he goes astray and commits adultery with Bathsheba and has her husband Uriah, Uriah killed, when the Lord sends Nathan the prophet unto him, a conversation breaks out that David does not realize is about him. And when Nathan's done with telling his story, David starts making some declarations. I would say lawful declarations because he was quoting the law and knew the law when he says, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die and he shall restore fourfold. And Nathan gave him those four traumatic words, thou art the man. And David realized at that point that his sin had been found out and Nathan starts telling him all these grievous things he's going to go through. And friends, those were a chastening of the Lord that he went through those things. I cannot imagine doing something where I know the consequence is never going to leave my house forever. The sword shall never depart from my house. I can't imagine doing something that was that are going to make my children rise up against me and seek my own life. Yet they of thy own household shall become thine enemies and shall rise up against thee. I cannot imagine doing something that would kill one of my children. But he said, and the child that shall be born unto thee shall die. Friends, that was a sore chastening that David went through. But did you notice there's one thing that David said should happen that didn't happen? He says, but you shall not die, for the Lord hath put away your sin. I may not have done any of those things that David did or experienced any of those consequences that David did, but if you allow me to just tell you on faith that the Lord has chastened me sore for my transgressions and my behavior, I hope that you believe that. Because the Bible says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. But when I come to grips with who I am and what I've done, in honesty, what do we say? I deserve to die. It's righteous. 
It's upright. And the Lord does chasten me sore, but he has not given me over unto death. That's marvelous to me. Friends, I deserve to die. And the reason I haven't, and the reason I won't ever die and be perished out of his sight, I may lay down in natural death, but I won't ever be perished from his sight, is because the Lord has done something that put away that sin. The Lord has done something that took that away forever and always. And how did the Lord do it? He says in verse 22, The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus quoted that multiple times in the New Testament during his ministry, saying, that's me that you're reading about. That's what I'm doing right now. And friends, he was rejected by his countrymen. He was rejected by those who should have known better. He was rejected by his very own family, his own kin. And yet, that which they refused, that which they disallowed, the Lord said, nope, this is going to stand. This is going to endure. And this is going to abide. Even centurions who didn't know anything but knew something about his power saw it established in their eyes. I'm not saying that the centurion in Luke 7 is the same centurion in Matthew uh, 27, but there was a centurion in Matthew 27 that saw some things established in his eyes as well. Because when he saw the uh, sun get dark and the darkness was over all the land, when he saw the earth quake and the rocks rend, he actually said, surely this man was the son of God. This is a man who has no understanding of the Old Testament of the law, and he said, based on what I see, this is the son of God. Let me ask you a question today. Do you think we share something in common with the Jews of the first century? I think we do. You know one of the things we share in common with them? Paul asked a question in Romans 3 when he said, What advantage then hath the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. But what's the biggest reason? Chiefly because that under them were committed the oracles of God. Let me ask you a question today. What advantage is there of being in the church of God? What profit is there of being of the household of faith? Much every way. But the chief is unto us have been committed the oracles of God. I have all the evidence I need right here that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and has done what he said he would do. But friends, I have more evidence than that. I have evidence that's equivalent to the earth quaking, equivalent to the rocks rending. I have evidence, friends, that's equivalent to that because when I got up this morning, the sun came up in the sky. Later tonight, the sun's going to go down in the sky. The moon's going to come up at night. You know what that is? It's a testimony to the promise of God that his counsel stands and that his people are his people. One day, when this blizzard leaves us, <clears throat> you know, I, I realize that some people think we're all wimps and weak, but friends, I'll just say this. I don't believe the Lord made me for a zero-degree windshield. I don't believe he made me for that. I don't mind cold weather. I don't even mind it being... Uh, I guess zero degrees, just zero degrees. But when the wind's blowing, I don't like it. It's not of God. I think that's the prince of the power of the air blowing upon us, moving on. Anyway, my point is this. I don't look at this season and say, well, it'll never end because I believe that in a few months it's going to get warm again. Why? Because cold and hot, seasons in their courses, is established and promised by God until the end of time. He promised that to Noah after the flood. I have these evidences. 
I have evidence as friends that God is on his throne, that Christ is alive. Every time I see Christ, the hope of glory, coming out in somebody and bursting forth, I have evidence, friends, that the Holy Ghost still works in the hearts and in the lives of his people whenever I see the fruit of the Spirit born forth. I have evidence all around me, friends, that God has done what he said he would do, that Jesus Christ has established what he was going to establish. And every time I come to the house of God, I find one more marker, one more milestone in my life that I can say, there he is in a place where the Lord still comes down and meets with his people. And that that the Lord has established, it's marvelous in our eyes. It was rejected by them. It should not be rejected by us because I can tell you this. In Isaiah 28 and verse 16, it says, Behold, the Lord hath laid where? In Zion. A stone, a sure stone, a precious cornerstone, and he that believeth on him shall not make haste or shall not be confounded. You know why, friends, that this confusing world doesn't have to confuse us? Because we have a cornerstone to go to, a good place to start from, where we can say, that's where I need to be. That's where I need to start from. You know, if your if you're, uh, foundation or your cornerstone is out of line, everything else is going to be out of line too. But we have a place we can constantly go to and say, I know this is true. I know this is my foundation point. I know this is my baseline. And every time something out there causes this to be confused, every time something out there bewilders this inside, I know there's a place that I can go that the Lord has established in his word, in his church, among his people, with his gospel, that I can say this is where my life should begin. This is where my starting place should be. And it's marvelous to me, friends, that even after all these years, 2,000 years later, there is still a place that we can go. You think that's because we're such good people? No, it's because he's such a great God. That's the only reason the church still stands. I was talking to Elder Mike Montgomery many years ago, and he, uh, we were on the phone, and he said, Hey, I want to tell you something. I just found the best proof that I have for church perpetuity. And I'm like, I'm all ears. It's one of my favorite subjects. I love it. He says, if you look down through history, we have done everything in our power, both spiritually, doctrinally, and morally, to kill the church. And we're still here. After we've already blown our feet off, blown our hands off, shot all of our wounded, we're still here. We've got to be the church or we'd have been dead years ago. And I thought, that's the, the truest, funniest, saddest thing I've ever heard. But friends, it's true. You look down through history, we're not the best people. Like he told Israel, I didn't choose you because you were the biggest. When you look at who ministers to us, we're not the best. But the reason the church is still here is because God is. I thank God for the good examples that I had in and around the house of God. If you had good examples, may you thank God for them as well. But friends, they were having to stand on the very same thing that we're standing on. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our lives and our existence. Without that, it's all shifting sand. That's why today I can say this is the day that the Lord hath made. Whatever else is happening, this is the day the Lord hath made. We're living in the day of our Lord. We're about to close another year of our Lord, 2022. It's been an interesting one. We've had some interesting seasons. But may I submit to you that 2023 is going to be the best year of your life. It is. 
because 2023, let me back up. Lord willing, if there is a 2023, I'm still hoping he comes back before then. Uh, Lord willing, if there's a 2023, it'll be the best year of your life. Because that will be the closest you've ever been to his coming. That'll be the closest you've ever been to the resurrection. I may die in 2023. I don't know. Lord may come back in 2023. I don't know that either. But here's what I do know. It's closer than today is. And today is closer than yesterday was. And if you need a reason for rising in the morning and saying, this is the day that the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Remember that great promise that we have yet to see made manifest, that he will come again and receive us unto himself, that where he is, there we will be also. You know what's marvelous to me? What's marvelous to me is all those people that, that had this in his day didn't actually believe it when it rose up in front of them. And a man who didn't have that believed it before it ever got to his house. And that still today, the Lord gives this to people like me. That I can exercise my faith. That he would say, great is your faith. Well done, good and faithful servant. I realize that I have not honored him as I should in many seasons of my life. But, that's the song you led this morning, 291. I want to read the last verse of 291. After the songwriter has declared what happened in the early part of his life, he says, Through every period of my life, thy goodness I'll pursue. And after death in distant worlds, the pleasing theme renew. In all eternity to thee, a grateful song I'll raise. But, oh, eternity's too short to utter all thy praise. Let me tell you something, friends. It's marvelous to me what he's done. And eternity will not endure long enough for us to say we got to the end of it. I marvel and I'm astonished at what he's done. I don't know if he's ever been astonished at me because of my belief and my unbelief, but I can tell you this. May we remain marveling at him what he's done for us, what he's given unto us, and may we use it to his praise, his edific our edification and his glory. Because I can tell you this, if eternity is too short to utter all his praise, there's no harm in getting a good head start right now. Because we'll never use it up, we'll never tell it all, and we'll never wear it out. May we be found rejoicing in what he's done for us, and may we go through life not fearing what man can do, rejoicing in who God is and what God continues to do, thanking him. He's delivered us from ourselves and from this present evil world. I hope these things have been a blessing unto you. If they have, give them all the praise, honor, and glory. May the Lord should bless you is my prayer. We're going to stand together and sing a song in conclusion. Publish an open door to the church and invite any that have a desire to join the church. Come if you sing. And on the second verse, by the handshake and fellowship one with another. What's your number, brethren? 489. 489. If you like to, please stand. 489.